The reading is Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and can be found on page 503 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman's son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in, in the language of each people, all Haman's orders in the king's satraps. Of the king, to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the names, name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rosie, thank you for that, and uh, do keep that passage in front of you. At the end there, we uh, read that the city of Susa was bewildered, and if you are joining us halfway through our series, you might be thinking, me too. Uh, What on earth are we doing here in this quite odd-sounding, to our ears anyway, uh, Book of Esther? 
uh, written a long time ago, very different culture to our own. What on earth is going on? Well, uh, it is a strange book in many ways, but its message is very relevant too. Uh, what we've been seeing, as the title slide says, is, is that Esther is all about the silent sovereignty of God. Uh, that is, God is not mentioned at all in the book, which is another reason why people are like, what's it doing in the Bible? Uh, but although his name is not mentioned anywhere, we see his fingerprints everywhere. Uh, that actually, if we can look, as the author wants us to, and see him working quietly and behind the scenes, we see that God is still in control, uh, even though he's not mentioned. Uh, and in our first uh, few chapters, we've been seeing um, the silent sovereignty of God against the background of human power and pride in chapter 1, as King Xerxes throws this huge banquet, and he seems to be the one with all the power, but, but God is silently, sovereignly working. Uh, and then last week in chapter 2, we saw that circumstances for God's people varied from good and bad, as, as Esther is put in a very difficult position, but then is elevated to queen in the royal court. But, but in both cases, uh, God is still sovereign. Uh, and today, as we come into chapter 3, we, we see the silent sovereignty of God in a new situation, which is despite the hate of enemies. Because in chapter 3 is when you get the really hateful enemy of God and his people coming into focus. Uh, and that enemy is Haman. Uh, we see him there uh, all the way through the chapter. This chapter is all about him. Uh, and his plot to destroy the Jews, at least on face uh, value. And Haman is the bad guy. He is the bad guy. And the author wants us to know very much that he is the bad guy. So he gives us all sorts of clues that Haman is going to be the bad guy in this story. He represents all God's enemies, all those who are evil and wanting to destroy God's people and oppose God and his plans. Uh, here's the first clue, his name. His name sounds like the Hebrew for to rage or to be turbulent and often in the Bible, names carry a significance and a meaning. They tell us something about the character and who they're going to be. Not just in the Bible, actually. When, when I was growing up, we had a, this tells you how long ago it was, we had a VHS cassette. And it, yeah, Pete is shocked. He is stunned here on the front row. Um, of this, 101 Dalmatians. Loved watching it. Loved watching it. Of course, there's a character in 101 Dalmatians called Cruella de Vil. Now, if a character is called Cruella de Vil, odds are not going to be a good character. You know, not going to be the hero of the story. Well, for the Jewish reader, when you hear that this guy's called Haman, already the alarm bells are going off. He's not going to be the hero of the story. This is going to be a bad guy. Uh, not only uh, is his name Haman, but his, his um, lineage, his uh, background, he is an Agagite, we read in verse uh, 1. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, if you read back into the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, Agag was a king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a people who uh, oppressed, persecuted, harried God's people when they were coming out of Egypt uh, as refugees. They saw this big group of refugees. They just saw an opportunity to plunder them. Uh, and God said, because of the way they treated his people, he was going to be their enemy for life. Uh, and Agag was one of their kings. 
So Haman, coming from this Agagite line, the writer's trying to tell us, not only does his name mean rage and turbulence, but, but he comes from the historic enemy of God's people, the people God said he was going to be at war with forever. Uh, so there's his name, there's his background, uh, and then there are his actions, which leads us into chapter 3 uh, and the story uh, we have before us. And it's a, a helpful story which reveals much about God's enemies and their motives. Uh, but, but baseline, as we come to it, we need to realize the Bible's realistic. It says there are people out there who hate God, hate his people, and want to oppose them. And if you're sitting here today as somebody who wants to love and follow God, we need to be prepared that there are going to be people out there who want to oppose God. They hate God, and they're going to hate his people too. And we need to be prepared for that reality. It's not a nice reality uh, for us, but uh, it, it is a reality nonetheless, and the Bible is realistic. So what do we learn about these enemies who hate God, hate his people, and want to oppose them? Well, here's the first thing. Uh, God's enemies pursue their own glory. At the end of last week in in chapter 2, there was a plot. There was a plot to kill the king, King Xerxes. Uh, And because Esther was queen in the palace and Mordecai, her cousin, uh, the Jew, uh, uh, found out about the plot, he was in the perfect position to tell Esther. Uh, And so Esther then tells the king and the plot gets foiled. So here we are, chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured. Well, what might we be be expecting? Well, King Xerxes honoured Mordecai, of course. uh, The one who foiled the plot. The one who deserved to be honoured after uh, that great deed that he did for the king. But no, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other Uh, nobles. It comes out of the blue. uh, And I think the author's trying to say it's a surprise. It's not deserved or earned this honor and glory that Haman's got. It's illegitimate. But nonetheless, he gets ahead. Uh, And what does he love? Well, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. Uh, Just a hint there, perhaps, that Haman himself had put that idea in the king's mind. He liked to be honoured, as we will see from what comes later. Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honour, we are told. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Uh, There's just a threat in the air there, isn't there? Because Mordecai's not honouring Haman the way everyone else is. What's Haman's reaction going to be? Now, we don't know why Mordecai doesn't kneel down and pay homage to Haman. There's two basic ideas out there that if you read commentaries and things like that. Uh, One is that uh, Mordecai's been very pious and noble uh, and deciding that he will only honor God. And so he's not going to kneel down and bow down to this Haman character because uh, only God deserves that kind of an honor. Uh, The other option is is that he's being a bit petulant because he feels that he deserved to to be honoured after foiling the plot. Uh, Either way, uh, it's not that significant. What is significant, uh, we're not told that, but what is significant is Haman's reaction in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. 
very appropriate for one called Haman. It tells you that Haman loves to be honored, to be glorified. He thinks he is owed all the glory. Everybody should kneel down and pay him honor. And this one Jew, Mordecai, who won't, he cannot tolerate it. It's an interesting point that if you talk to people who are counselors and things like that, if they ever uh, uh, counsel people who have a a struggle with power, who love power and are hungry for power, uh, they call it megalomania, they also very often have a problem with anger. Those two things tend to go together. Because if you want the glory, the honor and power for yourself, then if anyone gets in the way, or if anyone won't give you the honor you think is yours by right, rage is how you react. And that is true of Haman. And it's not just a little fit of anger. Look at verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. I mean, bad enough that just because someone won't bow down to you, you'd consider killing them. But to say, no, I'm not just going to kill them. I'm going to kill all their family and all the relatives of their family. And actually, I'm going to kill the entire people. I am going to commit genocide because he will not bow down to me. That is power madness. That is a greed for glory that is just beyond anything. And Haman pursues his own glory and God's enemies throughout the Bible pursue their own glory. The hints in the Bible we have as to why Satan turned from God and uh, uh, opposed God, the hints we have are that it was pride. The desire to seek his own glory and not give glory to God. And and see, this means for God's people, we're in a dangerous position. Because if these enemies exist, if they are out there seeking their own glory, and we are God's people and we say, no, we must glorify God first, we must put him first, we must honour him We're going to be on a collision course, aren't we? It's going to create a potential uh, conflict, just as it does here. Because those who oppose God will not settle for anything less than the complete devotion and glory of everybody being focused on them. God's enemies seek their own glory. They pursue their own glory, but God's people will not bow. And so they should expect opposition. So exactly what happens here. Mordecai will not bow. And so Haman starts this plot. God's enemies pursue their own uh, glory, we find out. But secondly, we find out God's enemies are effective and brutal. Uh, we're going to skip over verse 7 for just a moment. We are going to come back to it. But verse 8, Haman, having decided to destroy the Jews, then puts his scheme into action. Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Haman has every dirty political trick up his sleeve. Do you see he's a master of the dirtiest and grubbiest kind of politics you can imagine? 
Uh, he can spin truths and half-truths and flat-out lies to make them fit this picture that he wants to present to the king. Uh, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Well, that was true because of uh, some of the uh, laws in the Old Testament. Their customs are different from those of all the other people. Also true. And they do not obey the king's laws. That is at best a half-truth. Um, uh, there are occasions in the Old Testament where God's people refuse to submit to a law which contradicts God's law. But there's no sign in the Old Testament when God's people were in exile that they were rampantly disobeying every law under the sun. Uh, but he spun it, do you see? Uh, they're, they're revolutionaries, they're radicals, they're renegades. They're going to be a problem. It's not in your interests to tolerate them. So get rid of them, king. Destroy them, king. And just in case all his spin and propaganda doesn't work, he offers a massive bribe. 10,000 talents of silver. Do you know, that's always happened to God's people. The truth or half-truth or lies have been spun to make them appear to be a threat. Or in some way, uh, uh, not worth tolerating. The earliest Christians were accused of incest and cannibalism by, by people who misunderstood them and thought they were a weird little cult and just wanted to get rid of them. Tertullian talked about whenever anything went wrong, it was always the Christians who were blamed. Still in countries like uh, North Korea or China today, being a Christian is seen as a subversive act, a threat to the order of the state. And just even in our own Western culture that we often think is very Christianized, Bible-believing Christians are often portrayed as being a bit weird, a bit radical, a bit renegade, a bit of a threat. So take, for example, a few centuries ago, the Puritans. I don't know if you hear the word Puritan, what your mind conjures up. You probably conjure up some crusty old fuddy-duddy, just wants to spoil everyone's fun. There's a famous quotation from a, a writer that says, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. They just wanted to ban Christmas and ban the theatre and take all the fun out of life. Not true at all. If you read them and do a bit of digging into history, they were full of joy. Oliver Cromwell, maybe the most famous Puritan of them all, when his daughter got married, they hired a 48-piece band. The dancing went on until three in the morning. You might not think of Oliver Cromwell as a nightclubber, but that's essentially what he was. Or John Owen, one of the Puritan writers, who really liked to look good. Uh, he imported these special, very stylish leather boots from Spain. And he wore so much powder in his hair that his friends teased him it was enough to light seven cannons. He was basically the Chris Naylor of his generation. <laughs> but we have a very different picture to them, don't we? A picture of a, a crusty old fuddy-duddy. Well, why is that? If it isn't because fundamentally the world out there has an agenda to make Christians seem very different, very weird. And God's people have always faced that kind of an agenda. And we must expect it. I don't know about you, if you hear a story in the press about some Christian who's been sacked from their position or discriminated against or uh, there's some big furore over uh, taking their children out of school because they don't like what's been taught and it gets presented in the media doesn't it and if you're anything like me you look at that and you think 
Well, come on, I, I bet they were just a bit of a loud mouth, weren't they? Uh, we don't need to be winding people up like this. They're, they've been very unwise or foolish or something like that. But if I take this seriously, that actually there are forces out there who want to oppose God's people and are willing to tell half-truths and spin things in order to make God's people seem like a threat, uh, maybe I have to expect that even in our day and age, that, that maybe what's presented to me is not neutral, balanced, factual reporting at all. Uh, maybe it has an agenda. In any case, in this story, Haman's plan to make the people, the the Jewish people, God's people, seem a threat works. Verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. The, The emphasis there is probably, Haman, don't worry about paying the bribe. You'll need that money in order to get rid of this troublesome lot that you've told me about uh, but, but the key point there is he's given him his signet ring. Uh, that was the thing that had all the authority of the king behind it. You could stamp it uh, onto a document and it would be legally binding. So Haman has all the power now to issue laws uh, and to do whatever he wants. He has all the power of the king behind him. And his plan is to destroy the Jews. Uh, and once he has the power, he's effectively got himself into this position. He's still effective and brutal in the way he carries it out. Verse 12. On the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. So sealed with the ring, that means legally binding. No one can disobey. The power is Hammond's. But did you notice all the alls and every and various? Xerxes ruled 127 provinces. It would have been an enormous administrative feat to get all these orders out. We mustn't underestimate those who oppose God. They, they are brutal, but they're effective. They're, 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 they're efficient. They're a threatening enemy. Dispatches were sent, verse 13, by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. It it, it seems like Hanan wasn't content for the Jews to be merely dead, but really most sincerely dead. He wasn't having any of it. Look, destroy, kill, and annihilate. Not only effective administratively in in sending people out to every province, but brutal. Young and old, women and children, on a single day. This guy's rage leads him to be brutal and effective. And a copy of the text in verse 14 was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they'd be ready for that day. And there's a callousness about him. That, that last verse, verse 15, is quite chilling, isn't it? As this order's gone out and people are panicked, fearful, bewildered, and there's Haman and the king just sitting leisurely down to a nice spot of dinner. Has the air of uh, the Emperor Nero, who famously, supposedly, fiddled whilst he 
set fire to his own city of Rome as people were dying in the flames and he's just playing the fiddle to himself. There's Haman just sentencing thousands upon thousands to death. Just enjoying a nice spot of dinner. Good day's work. There is something brutal and callous about Haman, but we must not underestimate him. He is an effective enemy, a powerful enemy. The Bible tells us that those who oppose God and his people uh, are often uh, human beings like us, but behind them are spiritual forces. We're told in the New Testament about our enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting to devour. A powerful enemy. One writer said of the devil, he'd pick up the mountains and throw them at you if he could. And he can. We must not underestimate these enemies of God's. They are brutal, they are powerful, they are effective, and they are out there. We must be prepared as God's people for it to be hard, for there to be challenge. But if that was all this chapter had for us, I don't know, we'd we'd go out potentially with complete despair. How on earth would we ever stand against such brutal, powerful enemies who can overwhelm us like this? Uh, But in that verse 7 that we just glossed over, there's just a little ray, a little note of hope. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. What's going on here? Well, when Haman's cooking up his plan, he he needs to know when's he going to put it into action. But rather than planning it himself and thinking through when he thinks is the best moment, he leaves it up to chance. He throws a lot. Uh, The lot probably looks something a bit like this. It is a poor, um, a little dice that you would roll. And it would give the result, and that would tell you when you were going to launch your attack on the Jewish people, Haman. It's a very interesting, weird thing to do, really. It's kind of an acknowledgement that he isn't really in control. He's going to let the fates decide as he sees it. Random chance. But is random chance really in control? Well, if we've been reading through Esther and seeing those apparent coincidences that keep cropping up, maybe by this point it's got our sort of antennae going a little bit. Chance, randomness. Uh, That's not what the book of Esther's teaching us. It's teaching us about the silent but sovereign God. Albert Einstein once uh, said, he was talking about quantum mechanics, not about this, but he once said, I do not believe that God plays dice with the universe. In other words, I don't believe it's ultimately all random and and out of control. Well, he hadn't read Esther, because actually I think the hint here is God is playing dice. The only difference is God is determining how that dice is going to fall. Proverbs tells us, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from the Lord. God is in control of the way every dice falls. And here, in the first month of the 12th year of King Xerxes, when this dice is rolled, it's rolled and the lot falls on the 12th month. So because of the way that dice rolls, Haman decides he's going to wait 11 months before his plan is going to come to fulfillment. That is going to be hugely significant. 
as we see in the next few chapters, that's going to give Mordecai and Esther just enough time, just enough space to move. Because God, we read Esther and we see the silent sovereignty of God. We, we know as Christians that God sovereignly, silently was working. In the midst of this dark chapter, this horrific plan of Haman to destroy God's people out of hatred and rage, even here, there is that note in verse 7 which reminds us God is still in control. He is still in control. Haman, ruthless and brutal, God's enemies and evil in the world, very real and effective. But they do not have the last word. God will overturn their schemes. God will take their evil and turn it to good in the end. Haman has the worst of motives. The Lord has the best of plans. Haman plans destruction. God plans deliverance. And that's just what we should come to expect from this God of the Bible that we read about everywhere. This God who back in Genesis, uh, when Joseph was taken into prison and slavery and then amazingly raised to to the royal throne, uh, to the right hand of the royal throne. And at the end, what does he say? You intended to harm me. God intended good. Uh, This God who works in, in this chapter through Haman's evil scheming and plotting, but will bring about deliverance uh, for his people. This God who specializes in taking the wicked and evil schemes of people and his enemies and overturning them with a better plan for good and for salvation. I suppose we don't see it any more clearly than at the cross itself, do we? Where human evil and the devil's schemes, the New Testament tells us, conspire to put God himself on a cross. And yet all their plans and all their schemes are overturned as he is risen again three days later and wins salvation for his people. That's what chapter 3, I think, is teaching us. There are real enemies out there. They're powerful. They're effective. Uh, They want glory, and if we won't give it to them, they are going to oppose us. So we should expect that challenge, that confrontation. And expect it to be hard. But we must never despair. We must remember and cling to the truth that ultimately, reality is governed by a good, gracious, saving God. We might not always see him working out in the details. We might not always hear him. We might not be sure what he's up to. But that is the truth we need to cling to. I don't know what you're going to face this week. I don't know where the pinch of enemies or evil might be nipping away at you. I don't know where your struggles might lie. But Esther would say, remember, there is a sovereign God. And he has great plans for his people. And he will not let his enemies triumph. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Esther 3 is teaching us. It's an uncomfortable truth to know there are those out there who hate you and would conspire against your people. Help us to be prepared for that. And help us not to underestimate them. Help us to see, as Esther 3 makes clear, that they can be brutal and efficient and effective and ruthless in the way they pursue their plan. But help us not lose hope either. Help us to see that ultimately behind it all, you are still sovereign, you are still in control. Uh, They may plan horrific evil, but you plan glorious good. Uh, And even when we don't see how it could possibly work out that way and when it feels very deep and dark, help us to remember you are the God who specializes in bringing triumphs from apparent disasters. And may our trust in you deepen this week, whatever we're going through. In Jesus' name, amen.